Well, good morning. morning. Happy day after Christmas. All right, just quick uh, crowd participation thing here. Um, How many of you were energized by yesterday? You're on cloud nine, you got your Zeppelin, there were no bumpuses running through your kitchen. How many of you are exhausted and still thinking about going home to clean the house? Okay, all right. Those of you who are refreshed, give the tired ones a hug. Um, The day after Christmas. You know, Christmas is is such a special time, and I remember as a kid, it was just, there was so much anticipation, and then you finally get to the morning, and you're looking at all the presents, and you're there with your family, and, and you're just thinking, it's finally here. This is it. It's what I've always been waiting for. And then you do all the stuff, and then all of a sudden it's the afternoon, and it's like already over. And I can remember how quickly the thought started to come to me, like, I have to wait 364 days until this happens again. Uh, Today, our family, we have one more activity, and uh, so uh, my wife's family is is coming over, and we're going to, you know, keep celebrating, but... uh, As I thought about preaching on today, the day after Christmas, when kind of the big day is over, it made me want to look at the scriptures and think about what was it like for Mary and Joseph and Jesus the day after Christmas? What was life like for them as they kind of continued on past the the big events, the angel visits, the shepherds. And and what was what was life gonna be like now that you have the Messiah baby in your arms? And you know we we have the versions of Christmas and, and we have to kind of flatten them out and and gel them down in, into the nugget uh, story. But I think it's really important that we try and remember that these were real people with real lives in a very real context. And Mary and Joseph had to figure out how to be parents to the Son of God in a, in a very dangerous time. And I think as we look at the scriptures that we're going to look at this morning and we think through this period of time in Jesus' life right after his birth, um, I think that we're going to learn something about Jesus himself and about his childhood that will help us maybe understand our Savior a little bit more, realize how great he he was when he became older and how much compassion he can have for people who are hurting. And then I think we're going to to confront two kind of characters or or groups of characters that I hope will help us reflect on where we, we are at spiritually. And what Christmas kind of means, means for us and what we should be doing with this holiday. So let me pray quickly and then uh, we'll dive into Luke chapter 2. Father, thank you for your word and we thank you and celebrate Christmas. And we thank you, God, for the joy and the peace and just kind of the kindness of this season. But Lord, we also recognize the reality of the situation, and I just pray that as we think through the circumstances that Jesus grew up in and, uh, and what happened to him as this boy king, that, that we would reflect on um, your love for us and also who you are to us. 
And uh, whether you are our king or whether you are a rival uh, to our own throne. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right. So let's think about the period right after the birth of Jesus. The sun comes up, it's day two. And now Mary and Joseph, as very uh, righteous and good Jewish people, now have some things to take care of. They are in this period prescribed by the law where their child will be dedicated to the Lord. And Jesus being a firstborn male, uh, there, there are some, some specific things that the law tells the parents that they are to do. And Luke chapter 2 tells us that they take care of these things right after they are born. In verse 21, or right after he is born, in verse 21, it says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. All right, when it was time to circumcise him, if we go back to Leviticus chapter 12, we'll see where these instructions came from. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Leviticus chapter 12. Uh, The title here is Purification After Childbirth. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, A woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter, for two weeks the woman will be unclean, as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. Now when the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her, and then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood." These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. If she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. So these were the regulations for uh, the birth of a Jewish child. And what does Luke tell us happens on the eighth day? He's circumcised, and and probably uh, Joseph, as as the father or guardian of Jesus, would have performed that. But then, and then they give him his name, Jesus, and Jesus is the name given by the angel. But Jesus is the Greek form of. Does anybody know? Joshua. And in Hebrew, Joshua, as many names are, are a combination of various things that mean something, and Joshua means Yahweh saves. Yeshua. Yahweh saves. And so Jesus is given this name and he's presented at the temple. And later on we'll see that they are in the temple, which means that they performed these rites correctly. Okay? And what was, uh, what was offered by Mary and Joseph? Was it a lamb or was it the alternative? It was the alternative. 
It was two doves. And what, and what was the significance of that? If she cannot afford a lamb, then this was the alternative. And so Jesus had given, uh, or, or um, God had given Moses an alternative for those who were poor in order to be ceremonially cleansed. And so we find out that Mary and Joseph, uh, we kind of know this, but they are poor, but they are righteous. And they are concerned with doing everything that was required in order to uh, present Jesus and keep the law. Now what that tells me about Jesus growing up is that he's growing up in a very good home. He's growing up with parents who are humble, yes, but they have big hearts for God. They care about the law. They care about being righteous. They care about raising Jesus the right way as they understood it according to the law and presenting him and giving him every chance at success and understanding what it was to have faith and to follow God. What a great start. And what a testament to Mary and Joseph who are trying to do the, the right thing for their child and raise him the right way. Now, Luke goes on to tell us that he is presented at the temple, and there are a couple of really cool scenes there with um, uh, a kind of a prophet and uh, or a, a priest and then um, Anna, this prophetess, and they both proclaim that this child is, uh, is someone special. But then we get to verse 39, and this is kind of how Luke ends this description of Jesus kind of being properly set up and prepared to grow into a young man and eventually um, begin his ministry. Luke 2.39 says, When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, if you are a student of Scripture and you have read the other Gospels, there should be a record scratch in your, in your head right there. Wait, what? I mean, that, that's a great way to button up his childhood. They, they just moved back, and everything is good, and, and uh, I guess he's growing up, and he's becoming a young man. But if you're familiar with Matthew you know that there's a part that Luke, for whatever reason, and it's debated by scholars why, but there's a significant part of Jesus' childhood that's left out. And it includes who? Anyone know the characters? Herod and the wise men, the magi. Yes. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Matthew chapter 2. Now, Matthew is a little bit more of a Jewish gospel. Luke was a Greek, and so he was writing from kind of an outsider perspective or a Gentile perspective, even though he had researched and he cared very much about the law and showing how Jesus fulfilled prophecies. But, but Matthew is coming from a little bit more of a Hebrew background. And he includes this really interesting episode about this visit from people from the east. 
And what Matthew tells us is that these, uh, these wise men or these magi show up in Jerusalem. And they, they must have come with some flourish, okay? The, kind of the idea that there's these three guys, you know, with some colorful turbans, and they're just sort of bouncing along on camels. Um, camels have sneakers, by the way. Uh, anybody know what I'm talking about? Claymation Christmas? We just watched that. Classic, okay? But these, these magi show up, and they create a stir throughout all of Jerusalem. This is not a mild entrance. This is not just uh, some local tourists wanting to snap a picture of, you know, some sites and just, you know, heard, hey, you guys got a Messiah here? We'd like to see him. They probably had caravans. It was obvious that they were wealthy, that they were not from here, that they were important people from wherever they came from. And it says they came from the east. Now, if you know your geography, what is east of, of Israel? Asia, yep. You have Saudi Arabia kind of right next door. After Saudi Arabia, you get to Iran. Then you have uh, some kind of like the, the Western um, Asian states, uh, I think Uzbekistan, you know, some of, some of those places. But then you can get into um, the Soviet Union. And eventually, if you want to go the far east, you're talking China. Now, we're not told where these magi come from, only that they were recognized as Eastern uh, wise men. And who knows how far they came? Who knows how far they traveled, having determined that something special was happening in Israel? And it says that the star showed up, and, and as Doug shared with us at our Christmas Eve service, you know, whatever it was that these guys were doing, God used that in order to clue them off that something major was happening. Now, the fact that these guys from the East are included in the story should tell us something. Is Jesus just a Jewish Messiah? No. no. He is a global king to the point where God is working in a far-off land to clue people in that someone who is important not just to this small band of people called the Jews, but is important for everybody has arrived on the scene. And these guys show up, and they start asking, we heard a new king has been born. Where is he? We would like to worship him. Now, just to kind of modernize this, think about this scenario. This would be like a delegation from China landing in Washington, D.C., stepping off the plane and saying, uh, we heard Trump won the election in 2024. We'd like to meet with him and congratulate him today. Do you, you kind of get that? How do you think Mr. Biden would feel about that? There is a king in Jerusalem. His name is Herod. He is a bad dude. He is, he is the stereotypical evil ruler, corrupted by power, 
jealous, out for himself, prideful, and these far-off people come into his city and ask for, to see the new king. How do you think that sits with him? Oh, there's a new king? I'm going to lose my throne? Wonderful! I would like to worship him too. Now, now this is what happens, because the Magi don't go to Herod. Herod hears all of the commotion out in the city and says, what's going on? And through the grapevine, he finds out that they are in search of a new king, that they've heard this is happening. And so who does he go to? He goes to the people's chief priests and the teachers. And he says, I know there's something in that book about a Messiah. What's it say about him? And he gets all these scholars together, and they give to him the prophecies that tell of the Messiah. Micah 5.2, and this is what's quoted in Matthew 2, where they, they give him this information, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So right there, he finds out that the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a small little town just outside of Jerusalem. But I'm sure that the rest of Micah chapter 5 was read to him. And this often happens in Scripture when a verse is quoted. Rarely, The people who knew the Scriptures would know what would come around that verse. It wasn't just that verse. It was more like, a, oh yeah, remember the chapter where that verse happens well we're talking about that chapter okay so this is what chap micah chapter 5 says about this messiah who will be born in bethlehem marshal your troops o city of troops for a siege is laid against us they will strike israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod who is israel's ruler right now but you bethlehem ephrath ephrathah Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. First of all, isn't that just amazing that that was written by a prophet hundreds of years before the arrival of the Messiah? But now the current leader, who is not a righteous man, gets word that this scripture might be fulfilled soon. And his greatness is threatened. Everything Herod wants for himself, a name, power, glory, is at risk of being lost to this upcoming king. And he won't have it. 
Now, something that I think is just important for us, it's a little bit of an aside, but to just point out here, where does this evil king turn to for good information? The word of the Lord, the Bible. Does he want to align himself with the good purposes of the word? No. But how ironic that he would recognize that the Bible has good, trustworthy, reliable information predicting the future, and yet he's unwilling to submit to what it says. Isn't that, isn't that funny? That he would, have, he would have enough respect to go to the Bible for info and yet not recognize that he should be in, in, uh, under its authority. I think we ought to be careful how we use the scriptures too. Do we, are we willing to submit to it? Are we willing to let it speak to us or, or do we use it for our own purposes sometimes? Are we just trying to find something in the Bible to, to get our way or to prove our point or to support, support our agenda? Or do we go to it in order to be instructed in our own lives? Now, <laughs> this I think is, is also interesting and just to kind of take home the point here. For Herod to go to the scriptures to find out about the Messiah and yet want to kill this Messiah that the scriptures talk about, it's like a teenager who finally gets fed up with his folks. Sick of living here under these rules. Having to be home before midnight under the tyrannical rule of my mom and dad. Their narrow-mindedness. I'm going to be independent. I'm going to run away. I'm going to do my own thing. So, Dad, can I borrow the car? And uh, I, might, I might need some gas money. And uh, Mom, could you pack me a lunch? Isn't it? Don't you see what Herod's doing? Getting help from the Word of God in order to do something terrible with it, not wanting to submit. Now, I've already mentioned, what's, what's Herod's, uh, what's his deal? Well, Jesus is a threat to his throne, and he doesn't want any competition. He's jealous. But here's the reality, and it's the reality for Herod, and it's the reality for us. Jesus is king whether we like it or not. Amen. Jesus is king whether we like it or not. And it is not our recognition or worship of Jesus that makes him king. It was not his, his growing up and his baptism and his healing of the blind man, and his sermon on the mount, 
It was not those things that made him king to where we could kind of analyze the information and go, yeah, that guy seems pretty good. I, I guess I'll make him my king. Nope, Jesus was from the ancient times king. Amen. Amen. And it's all the stuff that he does that helps us realize it, but, but he is, he, he was, he is, and he always will be king. And when we acknowledge him as king, it's, we're just getting with the program. We're just recognizing the true reality of the nature of things, that, that Jesus is king. And so I love that, that song in the Christmas carol, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. He was already king. And Herod is missing this fact. And in his stupidity and in his unfaithfulness, he thinks that somehow he can stop the rightful king and ruler of the universe from attaining the throne and being a threat to him and the succession of his sons to the rule in Jerusalem. And so he concocts this plan. He's, he tells the Magi, okay, guys, I want to worship this guy too. You go find him, come back to me, tell me where he's at, and then I'll come and I'll worship him too. And so he sends him away, and the Magi do go and find him. Their star leads them to the place where he is, and they worship and they present their gifts. But then it says, in a dream they were warned not to go back to Herod. So the Lord is supernaturally protecting Jesus, again, uh, through angels and visions and, and messages. And so it says they go back through another route, and they don't go back to Herod. And then Herod, when he finds out, when he gets the, gets the understands that they're not coming back to talk to him, he gets furious. He gets furious. And this is where his wickedness can just be put on full display. He says, he, I want you to go into Bethlehem and I want you to kill every child under the age of two in Bethlehem and the, and the surrounding vicinity. You don't want to tell me where he is? All right, I'll take you all out. And interestingly, in, uh, in the records that we have of history, and we do have a lot of uh, that's written about this King Herod, this slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem is never mentioned. And some people struggle with that, and they wonder why. And it, it probably is because if you look at some of the other things he did, this probably wasn't that big of a deal. Think about that. And, and Bethlehem being a small town, it probably wasn't big enough. There probably weren't enough uh, boys taken out to kind of put it on worthy of Josephus's record. But it says there's weeping coming from this place. Rebecca weeps for her lost children because of all of these young boys who are slaughtered, a, a generation basically taken out because of this king's jealousy. And Herod thinks he's safe. Herod thinks he's taking care of business. 
And I think we have to be careful when we look at the way that some of these historical people end up. Uh, sometimes we want to just go, yeah, you know, like justice was served. Because if you know how Herod died, he got some kind of internal wasting disease that basically rotted him from the inside out to the point where his attendants wouldn't stand near him anymore. Pretty bad way to go. And I don't know if that was justice or what. I do know that probably had he been a kinder man, maybe people would have been more willing to be by his side when he died. But instead he died a horrible death alone. Contrast that with the Magi. Contrast that with these, these foreign men who want to come and find this king and worship him, who are willing to humble themselves to a foreign people and give of their wealth and their time in order to acknowledge that this king is sure somebody special. And I think that's what Matthew's doing in this chapter. He's kind of giving us our two options. He's kind of telling us the, the ways that we can go. And I'm sure there's a middle ground and it's a spectrum. But really, you're, you're, either, you're either acting like a Herod when it comes to Jesus or you're acting like a Magi. Because I believe everybody is looking for Jesus. Everybody's trying to find their king. Everyone's trying to connect with the one true ruler of the universe. But there are those who only see him as a threat to their own rule over their life. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want to follow your, your rules and your laws. I'll live my own way. And in their own way, although probably not as obviously violent, they're just trying to kill the king. They're trying to get Jesus out of their life. And don't, don't we see that all over the place? Whether it's academia or modern culture or whatever, as soon as someone really starts to to talk about faith in Christ, in, the, in this Messiah, the Son of God, you're going to get shut down pretty quick or laughed at or denied or canceled. Cute, Christmassy Jesus, okay, gives us a reason for presence. Lord at thy birth, Jesus, no. Or we can be like the Magi, humble seekers, those who recognize that there is some greater purpose in life and there is some greater power. And whether we're raised in the church or some pagan nation or, or wherever we are, there's something that as we seek the truth of our existence is leading us to this little baby. And we might not know everything we need to know about him, and, but there's just something drawing us to him. And so you actually seek, you actually put in the work, you actually do the studies, you actually talk to other people, you actually leave your home to go and figure out who this Jesus really is. 
And when you find him, you put all your pride aside and you're willing to bend your knee to a baby king. And then you get to go home rejoicing and worshipful. And maybe a little bit with a little bit less wealth <laughs> and weight on the camel, but with a full heart and a hope for a future. That's what Jesus does for us. Jesus' childhood, I think, shaped him and formed him. He was basically like a Syrian refugee, and, and the part of the story that I won't get into is that in order to flee Herod and not be murdered, Joseph was warned to take his family to Egypt, and so they escaped to Egypt. They're on the run. Think about what that did to Jesus as a young boy. Why do we live among these people who talk different, Dad, Mom? And I don't, I don't know what they told him. He was probably pretty young. But they know it's because we're, we're actually trying to save your life, son. And then they get word that Herod is finally dead, but even when they come home, because Herod is gone, they fear his descendants. They fear the one who was put in charge because he was just like his dad. And so that's how they end up in Nazareth. But this, this childhood formed Jesus, I believe. It gave him compassion for those who were on the run or for those whose lives weren't perfect, who had the struggle of existence, who feared for their lives, who had to leave home. And I think we see that compassion show up when he's a when he's a grown man. He knows what it's like to be the outcast. He knows what it's like to be the vulnerable because that's how he grew up. And we thank God that he did become the rightful king. But first he, be, he was the suffering servant who gave of his life so that we could be forgiven. Amen. He saved his people from their sins. And he saves us. And I, I hope that's the king that you're looking for this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would help us uh, to open up our minds and our imaginations to see what's behind these stories. And they are great stories, and we are so thankful for them. And if we're honest, sometimes we just kind of breeze by them, and uh, maybe we read this Christmas story uh, at our family gatherings or before we open presents, and, and uh, yeah, we, we listen. But when we really stop to think about what you went through, what Jesus went through as a young boy, what his parents went through to raise him, we are just even more in awe of the fact that you would come so humbly, that you would go through so much to save us. And God, we give you praise for the fact that you can, you can work in history 
and you can warn people and give them messages and, and work in the hearts and, and circumstances of, of rulers in order to get your purposes done. And I thank you that the boy Jesus survived so that he could die the death that he was always meant to, to die on the cross for our sins. And Lord, would you help us this morning as we reflect on this? Am I seeking this boy king like a magi? With humility and, uh, and concern for truth and with a willingness to worship when we find him? Or are we like Herod, full of evil motives and pride and, and just trying to get someone... Uh, get our competition away from us. Lord, I just pray that we would surrender to you, that we, we would worship you with a full heart. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.